I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. And the guys have some Bibles, so they're going to make their way to the back. And if you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll give you one of those. And when I say give, I mean as in gift. That's our gift to you. Keep that and bring it back with you each week. And it should be marked for you at Luke uh, chapter 4. So you can just open it up at the marker. And we'll consider Luke 4 in just a bit. I should have mentioned during the announcements our afternoon family meeting. That's our congregational meeting that we have quarterly. So those who are members of our church, that is a privilege and a responsibility for us. 2.30 this afternoon, we'll go over the first quarter financial report and give you some information about some things that are coming up in the life of our church. This afternoon at 2.30. Spectacular cells. That's why events are hyped in order to get us to attend or purchase or watch or whatever. It's why the cable news channels always have the words breaking news flashing on the screen. It's why when I'm on the treadmill at the rec center in the morning and I'm subjected to watching Good Morning America at 7 a.m., it always starts with emphatic words for the day's news, bombshell report, dangerous storms, spellbinding testimony. All of that's designed to get your attention and to keep you watching. And advertisers know this, and they, they use it. And so also do those who use religion to sell. The hucksters on religious television regularly hype their ministries as producing signs and wonders, especially in supposed miraculous healings at the hands of the healer. And they claim that these are happening in the manner that Jesus and the apostles did them, but interestingly, they omit some other things that Jesus and the apostles did. Like raising people from the dead. When was the last time you heard one of those? You haven't heard that many times, if ever. And if you do, it's usually someone in another country where you can't verify it. And you see, that's because healings can be faked. But resurrections are really hard to counterfeit. Years ago, there was a local couple who claimed to be able to heal through their ministry. To their credit, Richard and Cleta Brooks admitted that they couldn't do resurrections as they recognized the inconsistency of saying they can do what Jesus and the apostles did, but have such a glaring omission in their ministry. Pastor friend of mine heard Richard try to explain on TV why he can't raise the dead. Richard Brooks said, quote, it's really hard to do after they've been embalmed. Now, I'm just thinking that would not have held Jesus and the apostles back. Spectacular cells. That's why some of you can remember the name Mike Warnke. He was so popular in the 80s that June 29, 1988 was declared Mike Warnke Day by the governor of Tennessee. His first book, The Satan Seller, sold three million copies. His 1991 book, Schemes of Satan, quickly climbed the bestseller list. He appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show, Larry King Live, Focus on the Family, ABC's 2020, and many others. Mike Warnke's ministry and public profile are based upon a story he told of his previous involvement with Satanism. 
As written in the Satan Cellar, the story goes like this. A young orphan boy raised in foster homes drifted from whatever family and friends he had to join a secret, all-powerful satanic cult. First, he descended into the hell of drug addiction. Then he ascended in the satanic ranks to the position of high priest with 1,500 followers in three cities. He had unlimited wealth and power at his disposal, provided by members of Satanism's highest echelon, the Illuminati. And then he converted to Christ. The generation of Christians learned its basic concepts of Satanism and the occult from Mike Warnke's testimony in The Satan Seller. Based on his satanic experiences, he came to be recognized as a prominent authority on the occult, even advising law enforcement officers investigating occult crime. But there was only one problem. His entire story was false. In fact, he said in the book that he had these 1,500 followers over his territory in the hierarchy of Satanism. He was later exposed by some journalists in the early 90s, and he admitted that, in fact, he had 13 followers, and most of them had died, so you couldn't even verify those. Warnke and many others have perpetuated a myth on the Christian buying public that having a spiritual problem means having a spirit problem. Having a spiritual problem means that you have a spirit, an evil spirit, a demon inside of you. That is, spiritual issues emanate from being inhabited in some way by demons, and so the answer to spiritual issues is to remove the demons. Now, not all of those who teach this are deceivers like Warnke is. They're simply deceived. They're simply wrong about this, as I hope we will see. That is, they're not all knowingly perpetuating a sham like he did, but people like Neil Anderson and his book, The Bondage Breaker, or Frank Peretti, some of you might remember that, This Present Darkness, his novel, and others of that genre are all teaching the same myth, namely that spiritual warfare is against inhabitations by demons, and so it involves keeping it from happening and also involves techniques for what to do when it does. Now, today we continue our brief topical series titled Myths That Christians Believe About the Holy Spirit and Angels and Demons. Today is the fifth and maybe final message in this series, depending on how far we're able to get. If you've not been here for the prior messages, those messages, like all of our messages, are posted at our website, cbctrenton.com, so I would encourage you to catch up by listening to those when you can. And I chose this series because we were in between book studies, and these are topics, the Holy Spirit and angels and demons, that I hear folks, even in our church, talk about in unbiblical and unhelpful ways. Next week, we're going to have a Father's Day-themed message, and then the following week, we'll either conclude this series, if we don't finish today, and either in two weeks or three weeks, we'll begin a new series in the book of Jonah, and the fall, we'll start a series in the book of Revelation. Today we're going to consider myth number five, that is the title of today's message, and you see that at the top of the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out. You see that it says there, myth number five, spiritual warfare is spectacular. It's a myth that I hope we'll see. Let's pray together. 
Father, here we are in your presence, gathered as your people, with your book opened before us. We desire to learn from you, and so we ask you to help us to do that, and grant us clarity then of thought, openness of heart, accuracy in our teaching, so that what we receive is indeed your truth, and then we seek to apply that, make use of that in our lives this coming week. We ask you to help us with all of that. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I've asked you to turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 33. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet. Jesus said sternly, come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are? With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. It's passages like this, and there are many of them in the Gospels and some in the book of Acts. Passages like this that give the impression that we should be involved in removing evil spirits from inside people, sometimes we're told from entire cities because there are so-called territorial demons. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, but there are demons who have territory that's been assigned to them, and so you cast those demons out uh, from those geographic areas as well. You cast them out because Jesus obviously did so, and therefore we should too is the idea. We're going to see whether that's the case in today's message, but first, a few comments about the passage at hand and what it teaches us about Jesus and demons. One commentator has pointed out that there are four things that terrify demons regarding the Son of God, regarding Jesus, and all of them are seen in this passage. The first is they're they're terrified at the preaching of the Word of God by the Son of God. Now, why do I say that? Because we started reading in verse 33, and you have this man who is uh, possessed by, inhabited by this, this demon, and the demon just voluntarily begins to speak. But what's the context in which this demon speaks? What is it that's motivating this demon to say what he says? Well, that's in the prior verse, verse 32. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. And then immediately, you go into verse 33, what we read earlier, there was this man who had this demon, and the demon begins to say, get away. Leave me me alone, Jesus of Nazareth. I know who you are. And so they're, they're terrified at the teaching, the preaching of the Word of God by the Son of God. Secondly, the purpose of the Son of God scares them. Not just his preaching, but his purpose The demon says, have you come to destroy us? In effect, asking, is it time? Because there is going to come a time when they will be confined and will not be able to do their ruler's bidding. They know that. They know that's his purpose. And so they ask, are you come now to destroy us? Because we know it's going to happen. It's interesting, is it not, that the demons know these things? The Bible says 
In James chapter 2, the demons believe and shudder. They quake. They know these things to be true. Just as a quick aside, you might ask, well, then why do they keep going at it? (laughs) Listen, why do you keep going at your sin? Why do I keep going at my sin? Sin has a sort of insanity attached to it. And that's the case with demons. Thirdly, the purity of the Son of God scares them as well. He says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Being in the presence of this Holy One, this perfect one, this pure one, is something the demons cannot take. And then fourthly, the power of the Son of God scares them. They know He can and does do as He wills with all that he has created, and we're going to be reminded that indeed Satan is created as are his minions. Now, despite encounters like this in the ministry of Jesus, and sometimes with the apostles, I say this in your outline, that spiritual warfare is normal. I mean, that encounter doesn't seem normal, does it? But I still maintain and will hope to show That, in fact, spiritual warfare for us is normal. Now, when I say normal, I don't mean routine and regular, as in happening all the time, though spiritual warfare is that. It's happening all the time. Rather, I'm speaking of the manifestation and the means of spiritual warfare. The way spiritual warfare displays itself, shows itself, is normal. And the means of engaging in spiritual warfare are Normal means available to you and me, they're not unusual, they're not spectacular, and they don't belong to just a select group of people. And so, to show that, I say in your outline that its displays are common. That is, the displays, the manifestations of spiritual warfare are common. I say that because, you see, the spectacular and the miraculous have always been rare even in Bible times. Did you know that? The spectacular and the miraculous have always been unusual, even in the time of the Bible. The idea then of expecting a miracle, I think it was Oral Roberts who popularized that, you should expect a miracle. The idea of expecting a miracle violates what miracles were to do, which is arrest attention for a specific purpose. If they happen all the time, it defeats that, They didn't happen all the time, even in the Bible, as we're going to to see. So the displays are common, and there are a couple of ways in which that the, the exception proves the rule is seen in Scripture. The first is this, that miracles have always been rare. John Whitcomb, who was taught Old Testament and systematic, did he teach systematic theology? at Grace Theological Seminary in Winona Lake, uh, Indiana, for many, many years, uh, has a little book. It's a booklet that we have ordered. We thought we would have it by today. We don't. But hopefully it'll be here this coming week, and we'll have it in our resource center. But it's a small booklet on this very issue of miracles, when they happened in the Bible, and why uh, they don't happen as they did then. But Wickham says in that 
booklet that God has a plan in his dealings with men and that plan does not happen to include a constant repetition of the same kinds of miracles in every time and place. If that were his plan, then miracles would lose their unique sign value because they'd be taken for granted. God has wisely protected the significance of miracles in history by the rarity of their occurrence, even in Bible times. Enoch's translation was the only miracle in only in over 1,700 years between Adam and the time of the flood. Now, Enoch's translation, he was assumed bodily into to heaven without dying. Many of you know about that. It's the only miracle for 1,700 years. Years. For centuries, Israel suffered in Egypt with no special voice from heaven. Only rarely did a miracle occur during the centuries between Joshua and David, and God protected the absolutely uniqueness of his son's miraculous ministry by withholding all miracles for centuries beforehand, even from John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ himself. And so these are rare on purpose, even in biblical history. In fact, if you look at the entirety of your Bible, you'll note that there are four specific, four specific periods of miraculous activity. Three of them have happened in the past. One of those is yet to happen in the future. The first is this. Moses performed miracles upon direction by and with the power of the Lord. He did that before Pharaoh and his court as he attempted to obtain the freedom of the children of Israel. He also performed miracles during the, during the 40-year journey in the wilderness. These miracles were in connection with the redemption of Israel from the from Egyptian slavery. Secondly, although the Lord's prophets were active, they did not normally perform miracles in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, until the time of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah withheld rain, raised the dead, and called fire down from heaven. When he was called to heaven in chariots of fire, Elisha assumed his mantle both figuratively and literally. Elisha also performed many miracles, including the healing of Naaman from leprosy. Both Elijah and Elisha executed miracles during a time of spiritual rebellion by Israel and Judah. Theirs was a ministry of judgment. They both spoke against the evil in their time and against their evil leaders, primarily Ahab and Jezebel. Then thirdly, after Elijah and Elisha, There continued to be prophets, but they again normally did not do miracles. The next period of miracles came during the time of Jesus. We're familiar with as many miracles, those of the apostles and others during the first century. While the Lord is all-powerful, he can heal whomever he wishes by his own touch or laying on hands. The time of miracles ended during the first century. The time Jesus was here was again a time of redemption of mankind from slavery to sin. And then there's a fourth one in the future. The next occasion of miraculous activity is going to be during what we call the seven-year tribulation. The Bible says there will be two witnesses during that time, thought to probably be Moses and Elijah, and they will again perform miracles. This will also be during a time of spiritual rebellion, and the ministry of the two witnesses will be a judgment against the wickedness In that coming evil time. Now there are these patterns then. In the Bible that show God's planned coherence of his word. It's not a hodgepodge collection of stories. There's a pattern in the times of the miracles. 
The first and third occurrences relate to redemption. Now, the first was Moses and delivering the people out of Egypt. The third is was Jesus and his time on earth as he came to redeem his people. The first and third occurrences relate to redemption. The second and fourth, Elijah and Elisha and the coming two witnesses in the tribulation. Those relate to rebellion. Moses, the instrument of the first miracles, is a foreshadow of Jesus who performed so many of the third period of miracles. And then Elijah did many of the second period of miracles. And he's thought to be one of those two witnesses who will be instruments performing the fourth period of miracles. The other of the two witnesses is thought to be Moses, who was the first period, tying it all together. Now, Jesus said this on the night before he he died. The very night of his betrayal, the Lord Jesus told his disciples in John 14 and verse 12, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. Greater works than these. (laughs) Now, you read the career of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then John has seven signs that point to who Jesus claims to be. You look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You look at what Jesus did. And for Jesus to say on the night before he dies that people in the future are going to do greater works than these, what could that possibly be? Well, hear this. The works that Jesus performed during his public ministry were indeed fantastically great. Diseases were banished, demons were cast out, dead men rose, wine, bread, and fishes were created, mighty storms were instantly called. But it has to be recognized that each of these miracles was intentionally superficial and temporary in quality. In other words, no one was permanently helped by any of them. Nor were men's deepest needs met by these works of power. Creating food for one occasion did not automatically supply the need for later occasions. And with regard to bodily ailments, every diseased, crippled, leprous person Jesus ever healed finally died anyway. Every last one of them. And then think about poor Lazarus. (laughs) You know, I I was told that, I didn't see this, but uh, recently John Christ was in Saginaw. He's a Christian comedian. Some folks went to see him, and I think one of the things he talked about, was joking about, was Lazarus. And how God calls forth Lazarus, and Lazarus has got to be thinking, no, I'm good. (laughs) Why would I want to come back? But Lazarus is raised in John chapter 11, but Lazarus died again later. It was a mere temporary and limited sign of Christ's power to do the work of resurrection to glory in the day of the Lord. So in that light, our Lord's words now, on the night before he dies, that there would be greater works that would be done after I am gone, now we can start to comprehend that. Yes, indeed, there can be these greater works. When our Lord returned to heaven, the Spirit of God came just a few days later, baptized the apostles into the body of Christ. Peter arose, he preached that first Christian sermon to a vast multitude of Jews, And 3,000 people experienced the spiritual miracle of regeneration in one day. This is a greater work because it met man's basic need and it meets it permanently. 
Let's remember that our Lord's purpose in coming to earth was not to preach the Christian gospel, but to make such preaching possible. He did the work upon which that preaching is based. If he had not died as our substitute, there would be no gospel. But since his death, resurrection, and ascension, now in the century since, pastors, evangelists, missionaries, Christians of all sorts have won more men to saving faith than the Son of God did, and physical miracles have not been the cause of that success. Greater work than even what Jesus did. Spiritual warfare is common. Its displays are normal because miracles were always rare. Secondly, possession has always been rare. Possession, I mean demon inhabitation, demon possession. You see that in the first part of your Bible. The Old Testament, God planted Israel in the midst of three cultures, Canaanite culture, Egyptian, and Babylonian. All three of those cultures teemed with demonic agents and activities, with belief in demons and demon worship, with possession phenomena, with exorcism, spiritism, and other sordid practices. Israel was created to be light in this omnipresent darkness. But the nation continually interacted and intermingled with those cultures. More ominous, God's people repeatedly were corrupted by spiritual evil. Sometimes even the king of Israel would indulge in the worst practices, such as the notorious Manasseh who did it all. It was said he even did, quote, more evil than the surrounding nations because they sinned, he sinned against the light and they sinned in the darkness. Now, there are three important features of this occult worldview and its degraded existence that was in place in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. First, explanations, demonological explanations for all events and actions, good and bad, predominated. People had to win favor with the local demons, spirits, and gods or appease them in order to receive blessings. They credited demons with causing everything from a broken pot to falling ill, to disappointment in love, to defeat in war. Secondly, occult idolatry and practices were the norm. Astrologers, pagan priests, mediums, sorcerers, soothsayers abounded. Numbing brutalities occurred, such as child sacrifice and the worship of Molech. Sexuality was grotesquely perverted through ritual prostitution. Children were raised to worship demons by their parents and by an entire culture that practiced these abominations. Third, the nations that practiced the occult also pursued other generic human addictions like drunkenness, varied forms of immorality, greed, thirst for blood, thirst for power. Israel herself often succumbed to this kind of moral degradation. The entire world, including Israel at times, also suffered from the afflictions that attended the domination of darkness. Infectious disease, locust, drought, famine, animals that could kill, devastations of war. The world of the nations, again, often including Israel, teemed with spirits and gods and idols and demons, sin and death. Interestingly, these varied sins and traumas are what many identify today... The guys on TV call these 
grounds by which demons of sin enter our lives to hold us in moral bondage, necessitating a power encounter in order to remove them. But all the manifestations of moral darkness we see today were friends present in the Old Testament. And hear this. Yet it never identifies or addresses spirit inhabitants as the problem, nor casting them out as the solution. Never. And in the midst of all of this, the Old Testament exhibits two striking features. The first is this. The Old Testament minimizes Satan. It does not endorse the testimony of the nations, nor adopt the devil and evil spirits as the explanation for human sin or for most human suffering, for that matter. So it minimizes Satan. Secondly, it maximizes, does the Old Testament, human responsibility. Even the most profoundly degraded conditions are rooted in the human heart, not in inhabiting demons. So early on, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, God says he's going to destroy the world that he made because the thoughts and intents of the human heart are only evil continually. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. In Judges 21 and verse 25, the last verse of the book of Judges, and you read those 21 chapters of the book of Judges and you see the depravity, the sinfulness of the human heart. And it's summarized with the very last verse that says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The heart of man, the human heart, is sinful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Asked Jeremiah. There are six Old Testament passages in particular that teach the opposite of what the occult cultures of the day claim. Let me quickly give those to you. Beginning at the very beginning of your Bible, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, you remember the Bible tells us, Now the serpent was more subtle, more crafty than all the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. All the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Now, right in that very first introduction to Satan, we know this is Satan being represented by this serpent. As I mentioned two weeks ago, if you go to the book of Revelation, he's called, the devil is that ancient serpent. So here in Genesis chapter 3, at the very beginning of human history, we're introduced to this malevolent character represented by this serpent. But notice, it says, this serpent is one of the many... Beast of the field, wild animals that the Lord God had made. So Satan, in his very first appearance, is said to be a creature created by God. And in fact, later in Genesis chapter 3, after the man and the woman sinned and God pronounces judgment, God says to the serpent, because you did this, you're going to crawl. You remember that? You're going to crawl on your belly for the rest of Again, making reference to him as a, as a creature. The mention of his physical form show God's power over him. Satan exists and acts under God's sovereignty. His entree into humans is moral evil. He tempts and deceives and he seeks to rule. And the issue for humanity is who will you trust? Who will rule your heart? And suffering and affliction and torment and death are consequences of that moral dilemma. 
The problem of sin is the cause of our varied miseries. Those who listen to the serpent's voice, one has said, will feel the serpent's fangs. So you have Genesis chapter 3. But then you have 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. The Bible tells us that King Saul had a demon from the Lord. A demon from the Lord. So who's in control of all of this? He has a demon from the Lord as a consequence of his rebellion. The Bible tells us rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you, Saul, have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And so this was a punishment from the Lord, but completely under the control of the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, this same Saul visits a medium. The medium, the the witch of Endor. Any of you remember the old show Bewitched? And do you remember the mother-in-law who was a witch? Remember her name was Endora? This is where they, this is the story they get that name from, the witch of Endor. He visits a medium and God used this medium for his purpose. In fact, raising up the spirit of Samuel to speak to, to Saul. Again, God's sovereignty over all of it. First Kings chapter 22, first Kings 22. God's control over evil spirits is again shown when an evil spirit prompts prophets to speak falsely. And God is the one who initiates it. Famously in Job chapter 1 and verse 2, at the beginning of the drama of the story of Job. Remember, there's the encounter that Job knows nothing about behind the scenes where Satan comes to present himself before God. And God says, God initiates this. God's the one who says, have you considered Job? He brings Job to Satan's attention. And then he sets the parameters of what Satan's able to do with Job. And then finally, Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. Joshua the high priest before the angel of the Lord with Satan there as well to accuse. But Satan is not allowed to even speak. And the Lord puts a garment of righteousness on him. Now friends, scripture does not ignore evil or Satan or demons. God fiercely warns against all of them, commanding us to flee the abominations of child sacrifice and soothsayers and mediums and spiritism and paganism, sorcery and astrology. When the prophets of the Old Testament speak to idolaters and those involved in the occult, here's what they do, though. They don't seek to cast things out of them. They preach repentance and faith, not power encounters. Naaman was an idol worshiper who came to faith through a little girl and Elisha. Elisha. Hosea simply called idolatrous Israel to turn back to God. The Ninevites, members of an occult culture that we're going to see in a few weeks when we do our series on Jonah, believed God and repented at the preaching of Jonah. In no case, even with the gross and occult sins that the Old Testament describes, was the problem defined as inhabiting spirits needing a power encounter. All right. That's the Old Testament. What about Jesus and the apostles, though? They certainly did engage in casting out demons, and somewhat regularly. Matthew chapter 4 says, News about Jesus spread, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. 
Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1. It says Luke. I, that that is, should be Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So he gave the apostles the authority to do this as well. So Jesus did it and they did it. And in fact, you go into the book of Acts, you see this happening. You see the apostle Paul doing this. Acts chapter 16 records an occasion where he's ministering in the city of Philippi and there is a slave girl who's inhabited by a demon. And she is manifesting this by, frankly, I can't give you any other word other than she's just annoying. And Paul finally is frustrated with this annoyance. And here's what the Bible says. Paul said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. So we don't see this in the Old Testament, but suddenly we do when Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus does it with regularity and he gives the apostles the power to do it as well. Why? Why is this all happening when Jesus comes on the scene? Now remember, who controls the work of the spirit world? God and God alone. And for God's purposes, God allowed a looser leash, as it were, on the demonic world at the time the Son of God walked the earth. For him to demonstrate, without question, his power over every piece of his creation. When he stilled the waters, people were sore afraid. And they said, what manner of man is this? That the winds obey him. When he cast out demons, when he healed disease, it was all for the purpose of God showing who he is and the power that he has over everything that he has made. When Jesus did that, so we shouldn't be surprised that that there was this time of just a bursting of power encounters where the power of God the Son encounters the power of evil coming against him, an unequal power, an infinitely unequal power, but nonetheless seeking to come against him and he conquers it. But I want you to notice something. That when Jesus did this, he used two different modes of warfare against two different works of the evil one. And this is important to see for what Jesus did and what the apostles did versus what we do. That there are these two different kinds of evil. Moral evil and situational evil. Moral evil and situational evil. Moral evil is the sin that we do. Situational evil is the stuff that happens to us because we live in a fallen world. And the New Testament consistently portrays inhabiting evil spirits, hear this, as situational, not moral evil, that abuse and hurt people. Sometimes sickness is a curse on a particular sin, but most often it's part of the general curse of the fall. You see that in John chapter 9. Remember in John chapter 9, a man was brought to Jesus who was blind from birth. 
And the apostles say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Remember Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents, but that the works of God might be manifest in him. The demonized are not portrayed as culpable for their afflictions. It's situational evil. They're sinners, to be sure, like we all are, but with a particular affliction sometimes brought by a demon. Now, some of you may be, if you're awake, you're thinking, well, what about the guy in Gadara, the Gadarene demoniac, as he is known in Mark chapter 5? He's tormented and he exhibits bizarre behavior, but nowhere does the Bible attribute his affliction to his personal sin. The slave girl in Acts chapter 16 that Paul cast the demon out of was annoying, but not personally sinning in her annoyance. Solomon speaks of both types of evil in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, situational and moral. He says there is an evil in everything. That's situational evil. That's just living in a fallen world. There's an evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of, notice, evil. But this is moral evil. This is our evil. This is the stuff that we do. And there's a madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Sin is what we do. Suffering is what happens to us. It's the evil that we experience. You see it in the book of Job as well. Job chapter 1. As God mentions Job to Satan, as Satan's presenting himself before the Lord, God says this, Job fears God and shuns evil. When it says he shuns evil, that means moral evil. He's personally upright. But later in the book of Job, as Job is making his case to his friends who are trying to figure out why all this is happening, there must be a cause. You must have something going on in your life. This is what Job says in chapter 30. Have I not wept for those in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. That's situational evil. Stuff happened to me. When I looked for light, then came darkness. Inhabiting spirits in biblical times, at all times, are always of the situational variety. Jesus and the apostles cast out demons as a way to alleviate suffering. It was never, these demons were never holding people in bondage to unbelief and sin. And that's what many people falsely teach today. Moral evil is the power of sin. Situational evil is the penalty of sin. Moral evil is overcome by a truth encounter. And situational evil is overcome by a power encounter. You have both of those in Luke chapter 4. We read Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37. But prior to that, at the very beginning of Luke chapter 4, you have what we saw a couple of weeks ago from Matthew chapter 4, namely the temptation of Jesus by Satan. And there you remember Satan brings three temptations to Jesus But notice how Jesus responds to that. Jesus doesn't have a power encounter with Satan. He has a truth encounter with him. But later, as we read in verses 31 to 37, you have a situational evil with a man possessed by this demon, and Jesus mercifully has this power encounter and casts it out. 
If you were to read Mark chapter 7 and 8, Mark chapter 7 and 8, I would just encourage you to read those two chapters, Mark 7 and 8, and then read it with these two categories in mind. When do you see moral evil and when do you see situational evil? And in those two chapters, it goes back and forth between the two. Now, there was, and I have to quit, but there was indeed a power encounter with moral evil. Thanks be to God. You know, I said moral evil requires a truth encounter. Situational evil requires a power encounter. But in fact, there was a power encounter with moral evil. And you know when that was? When Jesus died on the cross. Satan thought that that was his finest moment. He had killed the Son of God, he thought. But in fact, it was the end for Satan, the beginning of the end for Satan. And we see that in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. Where the Bible tells us, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made, that is, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, but notice, by the cross. And when it says he made a public spectacle of them, that Greek phrase was used in New Testament times of an army, that a victorious army, that would parade the vanquished enemy through the city and make a public spectacle of them. And Jesus' cross was making a public spectacle of his enemies. He did exactly what he came to do. He did it exactly in the timing that he came to do it. It accomplished and is accomplishing everything that it was designed to do. And one day, he's going to finish the job that was started on the cross. And Satan knows it. And that's why a demon says, has the time come? He's going to be loosed for a period of time. The Bible tells us. We'll see this when we get to the book of Revelation. But even during the kingdom, the thousand-year millennium, millennial kingdom, there'll be a time when God, one final time, looses Satan to have his way. And Satan goes at it again. Remember, there's an insanity to all this. But he will finally, finally be crushed. And the guarantee of that was on the cross, making a public spectacle of them. And we'll continue two weeks from today. And we'll see how the Bible teaches us then to handle spiritual warfare. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you for allowing us to meet together in your presence and to look at what your word tells us about your wider world. There is more than just this physical world. There is you, first and foremost. And our God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so, Lord, we know that there is a world beyond this physical world that you inhabit, that you rule, along with everything else. But then there are the other spirit beings, the good angels and the evil angels. And they are doing everything at your bidding and they are doing everything for your purpose. And those evil angels can only do 
what you have given them to do. Because of their malevolence, they would love to do more. They would love to do more evil. But they can only do what you assign for your purposes. So thank you, Father, for teaching us this in your word. And as a result of this, then giving us the confidence that we need to live for you, and to not be afraid, to never be afraid of the evil one, but rather to have our confidence in the one who made the evil one and will destroy him. Thank you for your truth. May it be real to us as we live it out this week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.